It's time to rethink how we approach cybersecurity because the reality is modern cyber attackers are already past your initial defenses. ExtraHop helps your security team find and eradicate advanced threats before real damage is done. Protect your enterprise and customers with better defense. Learn more about how ExtraHop stops advanced threats at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. That's extra H-O-P. Endpoint security is designed to protect every device in your fleet, wherever it may be. These days, that can be a lot of different places. Find out how HP Wolf Security uses emerging strategies like application isolation, along with a zero-trust approach and framework to give you a powerful, manageable, usable solution to your growing and increasingly spread out security challenges. Learn how HP Wolf Security can make a difference across your endpoints at securityweekly.com forward slash HP Wolf. How have business drivers impacted your organizational risk? Simulate Extended Security Posture Management enables CISOs to know what parts of your cybersecurity portfolio to keep, what to get rid of, and what to buy. Know that your cybersecurity investments are optimized and can reduce cybersecurity risk. With Simulate, you don't assume you are secure, you know. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash simulate to learn more. Welcome back to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Jason Albuquerque and Ben Carr. Security Weekly listeners, save $100 on your RSA Conference 2022 full conference pass. RSA Conference will be live in San Francisco June 6th to 9th, 2022. Security Weekly will be there in full force, delivering real-time live coverage and interviewing some of the event's top speakers and sponsors. To register using our discount code, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash RSAC 2022 and use the code 52UCYBER. We hope to see you all there. Also, don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. All right, gentlemen, off to our stories of the week. so a, a collection of different uh, leadership and communications articles this week. It was interesting as I was going through the different articles, pulled together some themes. There's a, there's a few that kind of all relate to each other kind of in this first chunk. Um, and, and then we get at the end, there's, there's a few other pieces here. And, you know, this first one, and we've covered aspects of this before, the top five CISO demands and challenges for 2022. This comes from um, a CISO roundtable discussion um, and and highlights some interesting areas. I I thought number one was really interesting to me. The the COVID pandemic has been both a crisis and an opportunity. And if you're sitting in the CISO chair, you can be like, yeah, I can agree with that statement. Like it's been aspects of the crisis, but also an opportunity, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I looked at one, two, and three and said, yeah, uh, we knew that, right? I mean, obviously, the, the, the pandemic was an opportunity for us to make shifts simply because, you know, the disruption and, and the workforce disruption and, and people going remote, and, and we, we knew that was going to be an opportunity for us to jump. Uh, you know, we know that our enterprises and our organizations are going to have more and more complex security challenges, especially with the previous item, right? And then the threat landscape's only going to get worse. We knew that as well. The, the two that I really, really loved was make sure you're looking at vendors as a double-edged sword. New products are distractions. Relationships, relationships are key in this aspect. And then the other was five where, remember, zero trust is a strategy, not a product. There's so many product pitches around zero trust these days that 
resetting and just realizing that this is a strategy. It's a framework, not a product. Yeah, we're going to talk about the vendor side of this because I have the there's an article in here about the vendor relationship, which ties into this article, but we cover it uh, down a stack. And, and you're right. Having run third-party risk management and understanding both the pros and the cons of your vendor relationships, right? They're there to provide services, but you also don't want them to be distractions or potential attack paths either. So. Exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. you really need to focus on your vendor relationships. I mean, even in uh, non-challenging times, right? It's really important mm -hmm. to have that that uh, vendorship governance in place. I think um, to make sure you're managing the relationship, and you know, you have to look. I think not just at the at the relationship from the vendor side, but the relationship of your teams and how they interact with those vendors, and are you getting the best interaction from both sides of the coin? If you're only looking at it one way, I think you're missing out. Yeah, I mean it's it's the opportunity to bring in strategic partnerships versus tactical vendor relationship, right? And that's that's really where I focus. I mean, the market is so flooded these days that you know bring, bringing it back and really searching and, and and working hard toward that long term business partnership that you can go on the journey together, that you can be part of each other's growth. That that there's the trust. We talk about trust all the time, right? There's that trust factor. Trust factor with you as a leader. Trust factor with your team, you know. Trust factor that they're going to be taking the best interests of your organization and your strategies into consideration when they're when they're we're making decisions together, right? And that's that's the key. There is just develop that strategic partnership. Yeah, and, and that plays into the that last point around zero trust as a strategy, not a product. Yep. Not every vendor's realize that they're not the holy grail of, of zero trust. Like right. to your point earlier, Jason, right? Everybody thinks they're a zero trust vendor, but they're probably only dealing with one to three aspects of zero trust. It takes a really big company to cover all five core areas. And, of and I, would, I would argue, Matt, I would argue that even the really, really big companies aren't going to be able to handle every single aspect of your zero trust strategy. Right. I mean, the biggest yeah, of the big. They, they they try to cover it, but it's never it's never really effective, right? I mean, we've seen those uh, large security conglomerates try to pull everything together before. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember back in uh, my past, uh, you know, network associates at the time with Net Tools and trying to get this synergy across different domains. It just it doesn't seem to work very well um, past a certain scale. Yeah, and 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 you know, you know, you're going down the path of a trusted partnership. When, when you know that vendor can come to the table and say, listen, this is how I effectively snap into your zero trust strategy, and here's the outcome that we're going to deliver together, right? That's when you know they know where they fit in the strategy, and they're not coming to the table saying, I am your zero trust solution, and I'm going to solve every problem that you have. <laughs> Yeah, I started doing my strategy calls again on some of these topics, right? I did a bunch of this at Tenable and when I left Tenable and the craziness of, of integration and stuff. And I started doing them again. And I enjoy those discussions because I, I get to I get some insights. There are some key strategic players in this space that when you tie two to three core vendors together, you actually get a really good uh, architecture for your zero trust programs. You don't need five yep. per se, right? But there's two to three like really core relationships. And yep. if you can build relationships with those right vendors 
you can manage zero trust without needing a lot of different solutions, but you're never going to do it with one. That's it. That, that, I think that's the key, right? You can build an ecosystem of a handful or less vendors because again, we're trying to consolidate down. We're trying to go from 60 tools to you know three or four ecosystems that we can manage out of that 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 integrate and and, and collaborate with each other. But uh, but yeah, there's no there's no silver bullet for 100. percent Absolutely not. Yeah. Next article talking about information governance. What I didn't like about this article is too compliancy for me. Yeah. It's the term information governance, I think, that kind of set it off initially, because I sit here and I start reading through this and I'm like, they're taking a very compliance approach. I'd almost want more of a risk management approach to this than a compliance check the box discussion, because information is the key component. Data security and protecting information to me is the foundational component of, of any security program. But when you put it in the light of compliance, it kind of just, it, it doesn't make it sound as important to me. It's just like, yeah, you do these five, six things and like, yeah. it's easy, you're done. And it's not that right. easy. Yeah, no, I think, I think you just have to, you know, um, do, do a search in this article, find everything that says information governance, replace it with risk management. And, uh, and then that, that'll be the beginnings of a good article. Right. I, I 100% agree with that. Um, but 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 at the end of the day, there's some really good points. If you're if you're if you're going to modify this to your security and uh, and and risk management practice, uh, you know, top notch. I'm glad they put it first. Make sure you have the key stakeholders on board, right? <laughs> Make sure that you have HR, legal, compliance, finance, all of those key stakeholders uh, as strategic partners in this endeavor. That's that's the foundation of all of this. Because it's how you it's how you're able to get number one the information from across the organization and buy-in from across the organization. Yeah. Yeah. It's winning hearts and minds, right? Yep, 100 percent And that's how we make impact. You know, I yeah. I, and I, they I talk about the, the different teams. Go ahead. Yeah, yep, absolutely. They do. And and you know, there's a number two was define the business and compliance requirements. Just make sure that you're looking at that holistically when, when, when you do that, right? It's, it's legal, it's regulatory, it's vendor risk. We just talked about that a little while ago, right? It's not just compliance. It's, you need to look at it from all those different aspects. Yeah, absolutely. So these next two articles are tied together. So the first article is the list of the seven deadly sins. And so this is a seven part series. So we'll try to cover each week as the parts come out. Uh, the second article that's linked to this is the first uh, deadly sin, which is not owning failure. So I, I put the main article in, and I'll keep it there because it'll give you a reference to all seven of them when yeah. the full series gets published. We'll really focus on you know, not owning failure. I, I, I just love the way he talked about the psychology behind the challenges with this. And then he gives some remedy steps down at the bottom. Uh, he gave both yeah. some tips on identifying this, but then also how do you remedy this particular sin? Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I, I saw where you were going with this when I saw the articles and I'm like, I am so excited that this is going to be, you know, seven weeks of, of us going through each one of these, <laughs> I, just a level set for the audience. I mean, the seven that they pulled out, which I, I really like these seven, not owning failures, public put downs, spending too much energy, managing up micromanaging 
not protecting your team, saying one thing and doing another, and then short-term thinking. Those are the seven. I love those seven. Honestly, I really, really do. Now, to focus on number one, not owning failures, we talked about this a little bit last week. It's the extreme ownership conversation, right? Mm -hmm. It's being accountable. It's knowing that at the top, you're accountable for these things. So, you know, we, we had a little bit of that conversation about the buck stops with you as a leader and you need to own that. Yeah. And I think that's true, Jason, but I, I take this even further. I think, you know, a lot of companies don't do a good job and a lot of teams don't do a good job of admitting that this is okay. It's all right to have things that aren't rousing successes, right? And the reason why that's okay is I think you really need to have misses, failures, um, you know, unsuccessful entries, whatever you want to call them, to really understand what the failure points were so you can correct moving forward and have a much greater chance of success. So, you know, I, I look at this for leaders, like, you know, owning that failure yourself and trying to understand and deconstruct and figure out where where you could change things moving forward, but also do that for your teams. And I think enable that mentality that, hey, it's all right if something goes wrong, right? But let's not let it happen again. Let's try to learn from that mistake, understand where to course correct in the next you know event. And I think then it can be, become a very positive experience. But just, I see too many orgs where, they just almost don't tolerate it. It's uh, you know, it's a, it's a negative thing, and I think if you flip the script on that, it can become a, a, a much more you know successful opportunity for the company as a whole. Yeah, no, one hundred percent agreed, Ben. I mean, you know, that's that's the whole innovation mindset is knowing that failure is going to happen so many times, and and when you get when you get really mature in that culture, you're creating an environment that people can fail safely. That's the ultimate goal, right? Create an environment where, where people can fail and innovate and, and, and use that failure as a learning curve to be able to, to take that next project and be successful at it. You create almost that controlled yeah. chaos environment, right? Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, if, you don't, if you don't create that opportunity, you'll, you'll never have the successful moonshots, right? right? Because you'll never have the failures along the way that allow you to figure out how to get to that really critical game changer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he brings up, he's got great examples in this article, the, the whole Ford versus GM, the historical aspects of, you know, Ford thought, you know, nobody wanted customizations to their car. It was just, it was always black. It was always this model. Like mm-hmm. people should learn from some of that. And, and when he talks about the remedies, you know, creating that that safe culture, that culture of safety where you can fail and not be you know, blamed or fired, how else are you going to continue to innovate? Right. And so there's some really good lessons in here because look, I, I, I see this in, in my business and in what we do examples, right? We didn't integrate security weekly fast enough into the portfolio, right? After the acquisition, it's, it kind of sits on me and it kind of sits with the exec team a little bit. We kept it isolated, but Long-term, that was probably wasn't the right thing because when you acquire a business, you want to get it integrated in. You want to leverage all the scale of everything else. And here we are a year and a half later, still trying to integrate parts of the business in because the content is so rich. It can help us with all of our other programs. But we waited too long, Jason. Like This is yep. like something we know we did. And so going forward, we know we're not going to allow that to happen, right? So the last yep. acquisition we just did around After Nines, we're getting it integrated 
quicker because we see value in their content to drive our business model going forward. So if you if you don't realize that that was wrong, then you're never going to fix it for the next one you do. And at this company, we'll acquire at least one, if not two more companies yep. this year, because that's how we grow. So we better. And that's, and that's, a, that's a multi-part answer though, Matt, because number one, realizing that there was a misstep. And the second part of that answer is admitting it publicly, like you just did. So my extreme ownership, you know, tip of the hat was because as a leader, you need to lead by example. And your team isn't going to be comfortable admitting failure if you're Captain America, if you're Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect, and, and you never show vulnerability and you never show areas of failure or you never show that you've had missteps in your career, you're setting an example by doing these things, right? So set the example that, hey, you're human. Hey, you mess up. Hey, you've tripped in the past and you've learned from it. Be, be that example for your, your entire company. That's the first thing you need to do is be accountable and admit that that mistakes have been made because nobody's perfect. You're full of crap if you think you are. Yep. <laughs> Self- that's it, right? What but, was that? Self-reflection, but, right? <laughs> that's it. That's it. But, you know, I mean, if you have a culture where the, the leader won't admit failure, nobody's going to admit failure. Nobody's going to want to raise their hand. They're not going to be comfortable, right? It's you're 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 setting a culture, and and you set a culture by being the example for the culture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, next article: How to become a successful leader working remotely. This came out of Inc. You, you know, I try to pull articles from different sources because mm-hmm. as I'm out checking the news, I'm like, that's a really good article to cover. That's probably not in my normal news feed. This one just talks about some of the challenges and some of the ways to address remote work. Because what's interesting, they did a survey, 40% of people want to stay remote permanently. And another 60% 60 want to work remotely part-time. Like This genie is out of the bottle. Oh, big and time. we're not going to put it, it all in. We're never stuffing that back in. Never, ever, ever, ever. And you know, I, at my previous organization, we felt number one really, really hard, especially the, the, the ownership and the leadership team. And number one is it's not the same work hours, right? Because as people went remote and as family friction started coming up, like kids having to stay home, remote learning, things of that nature. Some of the executive team are a little bit more old school. I need my people in the office, you know, eight to five. Um, I had a hard time with that, realizing that, hey, you want to know what? The first couple hours in the morning, I'm sorry. I get to get my kids off and running for school because this is remote learning day, Monday through Friday, right? And, and you know, but those people, the productivity was still there. They were just making up for it maybe at night, right? While the kids are doing homework or or on the boob tube or whatever the case may be. They were were working different hours. Jason, the reality is like we we do so much work that's, you know, with these multinational companies that's, you know, around the globe, follow the sun kind of model. I mean, you're doing that outside of eight to five anyway. So, I mean, I think you have to have grace with your staff and your employees to realize that like, you know, have a defined set of activities and work that you want to get done. When people do them, what, what does that matter, right? As long as as long as you're functionally getting the the success criteria accomplished, I, and you're defining that success criteria well, I I think you need to figure out a different way to do it. And you know, to Matt's initial point, 
you know, in, in my math, the way I do it, and I, I could be wrong, but 40 and 60 adds up to 100%. I, I don't know where some of these companies <laughs> that think that there's additional percentage of people that want to go in 100% of the time, they don't exist. Like, nope. That, Nowhere. That, this ship has more than sailed. It's it's at the other port already, right? If you're not on that That's board, it. on board it, you're you're going to be left behind. Yeah. And, and, that, and that was the key. It was, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jason. Finish up. No, I was just going to say, you know, that that was the struggle in the beginning. Like I said, at my previous organization for some of those leaders, and I, I coined it old school because it is an old school mentality, right? Of, of yeah. I need folks in their, you know, asses in seat eight to five, which is just an old school mentality. And, and it took a lot to, to, to be able to convince them that productivity was there. It's that it was almost like paranoia. There was a little bit of paranoia set in because they just weren't used to it. I was going to say, ahead, we see some of the impacts of this right now in the physical world, like mm-hmm. getting help in restaurants, in physical location. It's tough for employers because people are so used to not going in that it's yep. hard for those physical based businesses to find people. Uh, it's yeah. a big challenge and, and it's, it's impacting the economy and businesses need to understand like, how do you balance some of this? Now, granted, and when you're in the restaurant business, you can't do everything remote. You need servers, you need dishwashers, but it is having an impact across all business segments. Yeah. Big time, big time. And, and I'll say, you know, it's having an impact on folks who have to physically be at the workplace, but it's also having an impact on the remote workforce because mental health is taking a hit. People are burning out. You know, the, the, some of the telemetry that we got from, from productivity levels were actually that productivity went up, up tremendously because people had this weird feeling that, hey, I'm home. I need to be doing more to prove myself. So, so it almost had that pendulum effect all the way to the other side. And now I'm at a point where I'm cautioning leaders, pay attention to your staff because they may be 120, 130% utilized and they're burning out. They're on a cusp of burning out. Pay attention to utilization. Pay attention to how much they're connected. Yeah, I, I've done the same thing, Jason. It's, you know, when you think about how much people are working and where they're engaged and what their utility is, like we, yep. we did see that, you know, the, the resources, uh, you know, really went up from a productivity side. But what we were seeing also was that just the burnout and the frustration yep. and kind of the, I, I don't know, the energy levels were going down, right? Yes. And so I, I think from a leadership perspective, that's where I've coached, you know, you've got to take the time, you've got to take time away from work, you got to step away, you got to, you know, show people that it's okay not to respond to an yeah. email two seconds after it gets sent. Um, you, you know, you don't have to be, have your phone with you 24 seven, you know, be responsive, figure out some, some rules of engagement. But once you do that, mm-hmm. you know, set up those examples as a leader to show people that, Hey, you, you can't devote a hundred percent, um, without getting to the point where you're burned out. So, um, take the time and make sure you're taking care of your personal life, your family, and, and then re-engage as you know, you get that energy back. That's hundred percent it. And, and also on the other side, I mean, so just, just a little bit of transparency on my side. You know, I work with leaders within my organization. We look at this weekly. Every Friday, we're looking at utilization. And, and, and we have triggers, right? Because it's not about 100% utilization. There, there's, there's professional development that they need to be doing. There's training and certifications that your staff need to be doing. It's all those other things that you need to make sure are still on the table so they have 
that value of working for your organization. You can't forget about those things. That should, that should constitute 20% of their employment time is professional development and learning yeah, and innovation, all of those right? other things. Right, exactly yeah. it. So, so make sure you're looking at that. 100% utilization is really, really bad. That means they're not focusing on their professional life. They're not focusing on becoming better and getting educated and getting certified and becoming better leaders, right? They're not having shadow time with other employees. It's, that's bad. 100% utilization is not a good thing. So just keep an eye on that. Make sure that they have PTO on the calendar. Make sure you have training scheduled for them. Make sure you have professional development type classes for them. We have to keep an eye on this. Mental health is so important these days. Yeah, I think, you know, you said, you know, hours aren't the same. You can't expect everybody eight to five because people are working all the time, which is contributing to the burnout, right? And so what I actually have to do now, Jason, in my day is I, when we moved, I used it as an opportunity to do a partial reset, right? Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. my morning now is trying to get some of those other things done uh, and not take meetings, right? Because Otherwise, I'd be on meetings all day long, like back to back to back for eight, 10 hours straight. And so I've tried to reshuffle the schedule a little bit so you don't get those burnout. You actually have to create discipline in your schedule when you work remote now, because if you don't, you will literally just be in meetings all the time. And that's that's going to contribute to the burnout. And yeah, exactly. And you want to know what I tell, tell folks on the team? Guard that time with your life. Do not reschedule that time that you need because it'll become habitual. And then you'll be scheduling over that time all the time. Not acceptable. You know, the one, the one thing, though, that I did find very interesting in this article, and I, I want to take a look a little bit deeper. The author actually said, I embraced the practice of having more audio-only meetings to reduce the cognitive load that comes with video. That's an interesting statement. That's so interesting. We're, you know, so many organizations are so video centric mm-hmm. where, where they're actually saying to staff, you have to be on video if you're on a call. We need that FaceTime. We need to have that FaceTime together. But I never looked at it from the cognitive overload side of the aisle. Like that's, that's such an interesting statement right there. I want to look into that a little bit more. Yeah, because if you think about it, if you're on camera, you, you've got to pay more attention. It, it, it creates more load on the brain, I imagine, because mm-hmm. now you've got the visual and the audio. So you're listening and writing and trying to engage on the visual side. So, yeah, it's yep. probably more demanding on the brain to actually do that. And so it'd be interesting. Like, do you feel better at the end of the day if you're not on any video calls and they're only audio? Like, do, right. are you not as tired and worn yep. out? Right. Because that could be part of what's playing into this. There's, there's I, I so want to do an experiment on that. I was to say, there's been a lot of stuff in that area. Like I know um, Teams has been uh, moving towards this whole avatar concept. I think Zoom just added it as well. Yep. So you can, you know, the appearance of being present and not just a, you know, a spot on the screen yet, um, you know, the people just don't want to be on video 24 hours a day. feel like, you know, they can't, they can't multitask. They can't engage. You know, they, they, that, that, that always on mentality, I think it does increase the burnout uh, of, yep. of a lot yep. of employees. And I think we're trying to figure out how to, 
how to yeah. manage that. And I think that that's a good thing, but I don't think we figured out what the solution is yet. Yeah, agreed. Last article ties into article number one. It talks about the CISO vendor relationship. Um, there's some interesting, what do CISOs want from vendors and what do vendors want from CISOs uh, components in here, which I thought was <laughs> I like interesting. It. I like yeah, it, I like it is. It. Because I think it's good, right? It's good to educate the vendor community. Like, okay, this is what turns CISOs off. Like, so don't do this. <laughs> and then and, and, and how do you build a good relationship? And from the other side, right? From the other side of what turns vendors off, right? How, how, how do you as a client not enable your vendor to help you out as much as they possibly can, right? So it's, it's a two-way street. And I love why this article is this, right? Because it, it looks at the two-way street. So from the vendor, you know, the vendor for the CISO, you know, we, we need to know what problem you're here to solve, right? Much like the zero trust conversation we had earlier, uh, where do you fit in? How are you going to get me to that outcome, right? And then know, know my vertical, at least, you know, do a little bit of research on my business, know the vertical, know what we do and, and come to the table with that. Just, just know that you care because again, it's about building the partnership. You know, I, I think it's more, I hate calling I hate calling partners vendors. I really do. I, I, I love the partnership terminology and because that's what I'm always after. I'm after partnerships. I want a group of partners that I can work with strategically. The tactical items, I'll just go to those, you know, I'll call them big box type tactical places to go do the tactical stuff. But other than that, I want business partners. And then from the other side, vendors want you to be honest. Just be open, transparent. So that way we can have the visibility we need to, to, to really help you and guide you. And then just help educate us. If we don't understand your business or your culture, we may understand the vertical, but every business is different. Every business operates different and every business has a different culture. Educate us on that piece because that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I yes. think that the most important thing for me from a vendor relationship is really, um, is it a relationship, right? Are you engaging? Are you communicating? Are you having a two-sided conversation or is it just one-sided? And so, you know, I think, Jason, you meant you used uh, the big box, right? Uh, I, I use the term box pusher, right? Somebody who, who comes in, they're just selling me something. It's transactional in nature, and then then we move on, and we may not talk again until I buy something. That's not a that's not a partner. That's not a, a vendor that I'm having a strategic discussion with. And um, I think you know if that vendor's only talking to me at the point of renewal, that's just as bad. I think really you need to have a governance structure in place. You need to be engaging with them and treat them kind of as like an extension of your business. And for those true strategic partners, if you can get to that discussion and engage with them on that relationship level, um, there's a lot more value for both parties to be had there. So I, I think it's really important to figure out what you're trying to get out of that relationship, is in any relationship, um, and you know to drive that for the most productive relationship possible. Um, how does you know understand problem solution value align to goals and objectives? And if you understand that on both sides, you'll have a much better relationship at the end of the day, for sure. 100% agreed. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. We'll see you next week on Business Security Weekly.